Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest weekly episode of HR Works COVID-19 Update. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. COVID-19 has invited a new wave of discrimination, particularly against pregnant women, employees over the age of 65, and those of Chinese or Asian heritage. There are other issues as well, including managing discrimination while employees are working remotely. We are pleased to have with us today, attorney Barry Hartstein, shareholder and co-chair of the EEO and Diversity Practice Group at Littler in Chicago. Barry has earned a national reputation for a career that includes more than 30 years of counseling and representing employers in a broad range of labor and employment matters. He's a frequent writer, commentator, and lecturer on workplace issues. He also has extensive experience as a litigator and has defended employers nationwide in individual and class action claims and wage and hour collective actions. He has particular expertise dealing with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, on both a local and national level, which included an invitation by the EEOC chair to address the commission at a recent meeting in Washington, D.C., on the legal standards governing employers' consideration of criminal arrest and conviction records. Barry, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Why don't we jump right in? Um, How did the EEOC first get involved in addressing the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, Jim, believe it or not, this is not the EEOC's first rodeo in dealing with the pandemic. Uh, The EEOC first issued guidance on pandemic preparedness in October of 2009 after uh, President Obama declared a national emergency in response to the H1N1 Uh, influenza pandemic, which of course seems like a century ago. Uh, But in in 2009, less drastic steps were approved, uh, but the pandemic guidance became the baseline for the guidance that was reissued in in March of 2020. Uh, And this this guidance suggests that there's really, both then and now, uh, suggests there's really a balancing act between an employer's interest to prevent the spread of the disease versus employee rights under the ADA and other discrimination laws. And the scales are going to tip one way or the other, depending on the severity and pervasiveness of the pandemic. And of course, this most recent one is obviously on the high end of the scale. So, uh, you know, while, as I say, it seems like a lifetime ago to some that COVID-19 was declared a pandemic, but of course, as we all know, it was not uh, declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization until March 11th of 2020, and the EOC issued its updated guidance 10 days later on March 21 of 2020. And in, in, in doing this, the EOC basically is looking to who the CDC and the U.S. Department of Health and Human, Human Services for guidance, referring to these organizations as they, and I'm quoting, the definitive sources of information about the pandemics. Uh, so this EOC guidance continues to evolve as more information is gathered by uh, the CDC and, and the other uh, related health organizations. So that's basically three months, but in many respects to many, a lifetime ago. Yeah, it does seem like that, doesn't it? Um, from an employer's perspective, uh, what are the primary EO risks when dealing with COVID-19? Yeah, I, in, in focusing on... Uh, this area, certainly from my vantage point and looking over what the EOC has done, the primary emphasis 
not to the exclusion of other discrimination laws, but uh, front and center uh, has been the ADA. Uh, and that, that has been the primary focus of the EOC's guidance. Uh, so in looking at it from an ADA perspective, uh, the EOC looks at it in four different ways. First, their uh, central focus has been on the type of inquiries that are permissible or what kind of tests and related actions can be taken to, to determine if someone has COVID-19 or related symptoms. A second, the EOC essentially has given em employers incredible leeway to keep individuals with COVID-19 and those with symptoms out of the workplace. Uh, and, and certainly I'll, uh, I'll discuss the legal standards, which are the, the direct threat standard. Uh, third, um, I'll discuss the issue of reasonable accommodation has come into play under the ADA dealing with COVID-19. And then uh, certainly the, the fourth factor is the EOC has approached this area in dealing with the ADA regarding those who are most vulnerable in, in getting COVID-19. So it's really from four perspectives, and, and I'm happy to go through uh, each of these areas with you as you, as you uh, so please. Absolutely. Um, you know, in regards to ADA compliance tied to COVID-19, uh, where have you seen the greatest amount of activity? Yeah, the way I see it, and, and certainly looking at the EOC's focus, the, the primary area has involved permitting employers to ask employees and applicants, as it turns out, whether they have COVID-19 or its symptoms, as well as conducting tests and related activities, such as taking an individual's temperature, uh, which, which is, in some ways has, has turned ADA compliance on its head. Uh, what do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, so if you think about it, uh, when you're looking at the ADA, there are frequently and historically there have been significant restrictions regarding the types of inquiries that are permitted based on uh, an individual's disability. But because of the serious risks created in the workplace due to COVID-19, the EEOC has actually relaxed the rules that they have historically applied in dealing with ADA-related matters. Earlier, you stated that a primary area of focus has involved employers being permitted by the EOC to ask employees whether they have COVID-19 or if they have the symptoms of COVID-19, as well as being permitted to conduct various tests and related activities, like taking temperature. Uh, how is that different than how the EEOC has operated in the past? As a general rule, based on the ADA, uh, any type of disability-related inquiry basically, you know, has to be tied to being job-related and consistent with business necessity. And as a general rule, it's supposed to be based on objective evidence tied to certain standards, whether or not a person's ability uh, to perform essential functions is impaired by a medical condition, uh, is there a direct threat, and you really need objective evidence before such inquiries or examinations are permitted. But now, uh, because the EOC has taken the view of the, the significant threat posed by, uh, by COVID-19, they're basically saying uh, that they are going to be giving employers a lot more leeway in terms of making uh, these type of inquiries. So let, let me let me give you let me give you three examples uh, sure. in terms of, of what I'm talking about. So first of all, 
for employees who report feeling ill at work or call in sick, employers actually allowed to ask questions about their symptoms, whether they have a fever, chills, cough, shortage of breath, sore throat, loss of smell or taste to determine if someone has COVID-19. Um, and, if, and if someone refuses to actually answer the questions, you can make them stay home. Or second, uh, an employer can actually send employees home or require employees to stay home if they have the symptoms we've, we've talked about. Or third, an employer can actually ask an employee why they've been absent from work, if, and if, particularly if they suspect it's for a related medical condition and, uh, again, tied to COVID-19. But the EOC does say, even though we're going to permit this sort of leeway, they want to remind employers of the legal requirement under the ADA to maintain the confidentiality of such records. But, you know, when you think about it, look back over time. When in 40 years of practice, I never thought an employer would be able to take someone's temperature when they show up at the workplace. So we're dealing with uh, new ground, uh, you know, in, in this area, as we all know. Yeah, and I wonder if that same leeway that's being afforded to employers uh, with their uh, employees, is that being extended to applicants? No, absolutely. And, uh, and, and by the way, before we get to the applicants, and this deals with both employees and applicants, but, you know, I, I talked about taking temper, you know, taking someone's temperature. Of course, the other area is, well, as I said, taking temperatures, COVID-19 testing. The one distinction I want to make about testing is they've made a distinction for both applicants and employees of uh, making a distinction between what's known as viral tests, whether someone has a condition or whether it's antibody testing to find out if someone previously uh, had the uh, had COVID-19. And the OC and basically CDC have concluded that antibody testing is not, uh, is not really accurate and reliable. So that can't be done. But, but coming mm. back to your question on, on applicants, comparable to employees, they've basically said you can ask applicants and do the same sorts of, of testing. The key caveat it has to be after a conditional offer. So after a conditional offer, you can uh, essentially screen job applicants um, in terms of for the symptoms. You can ask them the questions. You can take a, an applicant's temperature. You can delay the start date if a person has COVID-19 or related symptoms. And, and surprisingly, you can even withdraw the job offer if an individual has COVID-19 or symptoms of it when an employer needs applicants to start immediately. So to me, this is truly forging new ground in terms of the leeways that, that employers are being given uh, in dealing with this area. Yeah, it certainly is a lot of new ground. Um, I know typically these kinds of rulings rely on legal standards, you know, and I'm wondering what legal standard the, e, the EEOC is relying on regards to this, this leeway. Yeah. At the end of the day, there historically there is a doctrine under the ADA with, with known as a direct threat, and the legal standard the DOC has historically used in the courts is whether a there is a significant risk of substantial harm to the health and safety of the individual or others, and that, that basically cannot be eliminated by reasonable accommodation. And it usually it's a fairly rigorous test, but the bottom line is 
the EOC has adopted the CDC standard that because of the world we're in today and COVID-19 presents such a substantial and significant risk that that creates the automatic direct threat. So if you either have COVID-19 or you have the symptoms of COVID-19, that's where you're given all the leeway as opposed to having to go through the, the sort of more extensive analysis that you typically would have to do in, in dealing with the direct threat standard. In discussing the ADA, you also referred to the issue of reasonable accommodations coming into play dealing with COVID-19. Uh, are there also new rules here from the EEOC from your perspective? You know, again, absolutely. Uh, and the way they've approached both, as, as you know, in dealing with the ADA, the two buzzwords, the way or terms we always hear about is uh, interactive process and reasonable accommodation. And basically what the EOC has said when it comes to the interactive process, when it comes to the medical documentation that you're required before reasonable accommodation uh, is, you know, that you can ask about, uh, the EOC has essentially encouraged employers to uh, essentially apply a, a less rigid and provide a more flexible approach in terms of, of dealing with those. So as an example, uh, three issues come into play. Now, of course, before you make provide reasonable accommodation to someone, you can always request medical documentation. But they've said, because of the world we live in and it's so hard to get a hold of healthcare professionals, it may be relying on something such as a health insurance record or, or a prescription. Uh, the same thing uh, with the interactive process. As opposed to going through an extensive process and whatnot, the, uh, the agency has suggested that, you know what, be flexible, consider giving it to them, even if they don't provide enough information at the outset. And you may want to even set up a put together a sunset uh, date or, or end date for the accommodation. Uh, and, then, and third, uh, on the other end of the spectrum, when it gets down to undue hardship, historically, undue hardship is a pretty high standard placed on employers before you can uh, elect not to provide a reasonable accommodation. But the EOC has taken a more realistic view of of undue hardship, and they've explained that I'm quoting, an accommodation that would not impose an undue hardship prior to the pandemic may pose one now. So it looks like at both sides, from an employer perspective and employer perspective, flexibility seems to be um, the rule of road and, and certainly not being as rigid as the agency has been in the past. Are you seeing any unique, unique issues coming into play dealing with reasonable accommodation uh, especially as employers are beginning to bring employees back to work after the lockdowns, furloughs, and teleworking? You know, we have. And I think for certainly front and center is this issue of employers determining that a job now needs to be performed in the workplace and the individual wants to stay at home due to concerns based on, you know, in many respects, it could, it could be a disability. And so when this occurs, an employer really needs to approach this issue from two perspectives. The, the first, you've got to look at it from an environmental view, meaning are there modifications in the work site that can address any employee concerns? It could be such things as one-way aisles. It could be using plexiglass and other barriers to ensure minimum distances between customers and workers, as we've seen in, in food stores or retail operations. Uh, it could involve um, 
other, you know, wearing masks and other social distancing efforts. So that's on what I'll call the environmental side. Secondly, even looking at the job itself, employers are encouraged to, to look at options such as temporary restructuring uh, of marginal duties or removing them, temporary transfers to a different position, modifying work schedules or, or shift assignments. And so, so you look at it at, from, from a couple of perspectives, but the one area that does come into play as well, just because someone does not want to come back and they have a fear of coming back is not going to be adequate with one major caveat. And that is the fact that mental disabilities may come into play. And, and obviously, if someone does have a mental disability, certainly you have the same obligations of reasonable accommodation. I can see this getting very complicated very quickly. You know, uh, employees being so afraid of coming back are going to come up with as many reasons as they can, right, not to come back. And one of their best arguments, from my perspective, is, well, it was remote for three months, and now it's not remote. You know, you're just bringing me back because you, you know, because you you don't like me or because you you just want to have control or, you know, people are going to start getting creative around this issue. Is that something you see likely to happen? I mean, I look, I that's we've seen it happen. And and that's why from in each one of these situations have to really be looked at on an individualized basis. And so uh, we know full well that reasonable accommodation may come into play. We need to take a look and see if someone really does have a disability. But as I say, anxiety itself, just not wanting to come in, that may not be, you know, on the one hand, that may be not be enough. On the other hand, I think one of the things that employers have started to see is that many employers thought we could never work successfully from home. And so one of the things that it, and it really gets beyond the purview of today's topic, but it really gets down to the whole culture of the workplace. And the question really becomes, is the way things previously done uh, going to resume? Meaning, um, are employers going to start rethinking the way that they design a workplace? And, and just as importantly, can employers for certain jobs be as successful working from home as in the workplace itself? So I, I think this issue itself creates a, a much broader and bigger question of what is the future of the workplace? Absolutely. And uh, that's that's something we've begun to tackle and we're not going to know the answer to for quite some time. Um, I want to switch the, the conversation or shift it to uh, high risk individuals. The CDC has identified certain individuals as having a higher risk for severe illness. You know, we we've all read the news and listened to things like diabetes, uh, asthma, uh, stuff like that. Uh, what guidance has he so given? Sorry, what guidance has the EEOC given to address that issue? Yeah, and, and, and you're absolutely right. They've talked about people of all ages with underlying medical conditions, if it's not well controlled, which could include chronic lung disease, severe asthma, heart conditions, uh, cancer treatment, bone marrow, organ transplants, immune deficiencies, or other immune weakening conditions aside from the severe diabetes, kidney disease, liver disease, as you've talked about. So in looking at area, two basic standards. One, uh, 
you can't simply automatically exclude someone because they're high risk. Second, you've really got to make a, an individualized assessment. And so as an example, two, it, this can come up in one of two ways. If it's the employer and it's an employer initiated uh, issue, you, there are three steps that are basically required for an employer. First of all, you've got to find out and figure out, are there ways to return that employee to the work site while still performing the essential functions? And that could include providing protective gowns, gloves, substitution marginal functions, modification work schedules, move to a location where the employee performs the work. So first looking at the job, and if they can't return to the workplace, can we consider other options such as telework, leaves of absence, or reassignment? And it's only after you go through those first two steps and you determine that there's no other option that you, as a last resort, you may potentially bar the employee from the workplace. But the whole idea is an automatic exclusion. You pull that stunt, you're going to be vulnerable, and you're going to, you, and you may create the risk of of a lawsuit. And that's certainly what employers want to avoid. Uh, what about employees that and individuals who? simply have a higher risk for severe illness, but don't necessarily have a specific disability. Uh, that's people that are 65 and older or pregnant employees, people like that. Yeah, when, I mean, I think the key thing in, in talking about both. So so the first thing is, uh, is pregnant workers uh, that come into play. And so the, we've everything we've read, we've talked about this issue of potentially uh, pregnant workers creating, uh, having a higher risk and so the first question becomes, looking at it from an employer perspective, can an employer exclude an employee from the workplace due to pregnancy? Uh, and the bottom line is, not surprisingly, the answer is no. Uh, pure and simple. There's, there's no, uh, there's no, it's no ifs, ands, or buts. Uh, there were, there was a case years ago known as Johnson Controls, where an employer was. Uh, trying to exclude individuals who were pregnant workers were exposed to chemicals and they just were making an automatic exclusion. And the bottom line, you can't do it. It's, you have to look at things on an individualized basis and determine if that individual truly does have a severe disability that would create a, ha a safety hazard. Uh, on the other hand, if it's the employee who wants the accommodation, um, then it, you have to look at it just as you would any other reasonable accommodation, go through that interactive process, and determine whether or not someone has some pregnancy-related medical condition or disability, or just as importantly, you need to make certain that that pregnant worker is not being treated differently than others. Uh, same approach in some respects dealing with age. We've heard more and more about individuals 65 and age, 65 years of age and older that are higher risk. Can an employer exclude those individuals Answer, the same approach as with pregnancy, absolutely not. On the other hand, if it's the individual who says, you know, I'm at risk, I don't want to come in. Uh, interestingly enough, un under the ADEA or AIDS Discrimination Employment Act, there is no legal obligation to make reasonable accommodation. On the other hand, if an employer wants to make an accommodation and wants to be flexible, the, the idea does not prohibit an employer from doing so and providing perhaps a little more leeway to older workers if it so chooses. But legally, are they obligated to do it? Uh, the answer is no. That's interesting. Um, I wonder what the rationale behind that was. 
You know, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I guess part of it boils down to this issue of, uh, again, only because uh, on the way, you know, there is no reasonable obligation, a reasonable accommodation obligation, but uh, again, because there's no, there's no restriction of treating older workers more favorably. I think the only potential risk may be is there are a handful of states that prohibit discrimination on the basis of age. So in those handful of jurisdictions, maybe there, there may be some vulnerability, but I'd probably say in the majority of jurisdictions, if you want to treat your older workers more favorably, you certainly can. It's a good way to look at it. Um, are there any other EEO related issues that the EEOC has addressed based on the pandemic? You know, there are, there are really two that, that I'd, I'd encourage employers to think about. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion in the press uh, about individuals of Asian descent. That is Asian Americans and others of Asian descent who have been subjected to unfair treatment, to harassment. And so uh, even the EOC's chair has, uh, has raised that concern. And, the, and even the guidance that has approached it emphasize that obviously we may have a new issue in terms of other, you know, like any other sort of harassment, harassment on the basis of someone's national origin or ethnicity certainly is prohibited. And it doesn't matter whether it's being done in person, verbally, or via electronically through, through email. So, so that would be the one area. The second is this whole area of caregivers. And obviously, we know a lot of individuals with young children, and, and certainly a lot of moms need to take care of, uh, of their young ones. But the EOC reminds us that we live in a new world today. And the bottom line is you need to be just as careful if a male needs to stay home um, because of their family responsibilities. They cannot be treated any less favorably than their female co-workers. Finally, um, what EEO issues, if any, do you see on the horizon based on COVID-19? You know, Jim, the, the first one that... Uh, I think all employers are going to continue to be faced with is we have seen industries of all types, whether we're talking retail, hospitality, or others, have been severely impacted by this pandemic. And so it's impacted the bottom line. And so unfortunately, not only have employers been rethinking how they do work, but just as importantly, because of the impact of the bottom line, uh, they've had to reevaluate whether they actually can bring the entire workforce back, or even if they have employees working, are they going to be required to make do with fewer workers? So if you, whether you look at it from either of those two perspectives, a few basic observations, recommendations I, am, I want to encourage employers to think about. Uh, the first is that we unfortunately are going to deal with a situation where otherwise satisfactory workers are may very well be impacted by this process. So one thing employers need to be thinking about are such things as determining what are the applicable skills uh, and experience needed or work records you need to look at. So it boil down to issues such as relative rankings. Just as importantly, when in order to make your make certain that your decisions are defensible, the more you can rely on objective factors, uh, the more defensible it's going to be. And certainly, you, you may very want to consider a privilege review of proposed selection decisions working with outside counsel. And of course, the magic phrase, 
document, document, document. Uh, and obviously, I could say that till I'm till I'm blue in the face. And and when and the reason I raise all of this is because uh, when you we can certainly anticipate over the coming year we're going to see a significant spike in the number of discrimination charges uh, that are filed in this country. And 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 looking back, and and I try to monitor EOC activity around the country and certainly the level of charges. And if you look back to 2010 and 2011, which was the height of the, you know, really the last recession, we had the highest number of EOC charges that we'd ever seen. And certainly, um, based on the fact that we most recently had the highest level of employment since the Great Recession, we know full well that we're going to continue to have these sorts of issues dealing with unemployment. And so for that reason, I think we have to anticipate we're going to see increases in the number of charges. So employers just need to be careful. Yeah, that was going to be my my final, final question was, you know, this is complicated. It's changing all the time. So, you know, employers are hopefully in a good position to get these new rules under their belt, understand them, implement them fairly. You know, but the people that rarely get these kinds of updates are the employees, you know, and people that are used to being discriminated against are going to go to interviews and, and be asked questions that used to be, you can't ask that question and say, say that exactly to the employer. You know, you can't ask me what my, my medical history is. You can't ask me what my temperature is, you know, um, there's going to be a lot of confusion and misunderstanding is basically what I'm saying. No, I, and I agree. And, and, you know, and I think one of the other areas we know full well over the last year, what is every what is what have we heard every day on the news? What are we searching for? We're searching for the vaccine, and so so then what's on the horizon? The bottom line is if they start coming out with a vaccine, what's going to happen? Employers are going to start saying, "You have to get a vaccine." Oh, and you man. know what? That's going to be the next level of activity where, where we may very well see risks as well because some individuals, whether it be for disability related reasons, because they're concerned that it, their condition could be aggravated, or it could be for religious reasons. Someone doesn't uh, want to get inoculated with the vaccine. Um, we, we are going to probably see a new uh, sort of level of charges even dealing with that area. So unfortunately, even with the good news uh, that we hope to have in the not too distant future, we're going to also have additional legal challenges we're going to continue to have to deal with. Well, Terry, that's about all the time we have today, but thank you so much for, for joining us. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Listeners, please check back next week for the next episode of HR Works COVID-19 update. You can always follow us on Twitter at HR Works Podcast. Feel free to leave a comment. Let us know how we're doing. Ask questions, whatever you want. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.